It's Jennifer Diane Ghostin, and welcome to Once Upon a Time in Adoptee Land. A part of my identity is being an adoptee, being separated at birth from my original family and placed into foster care for two years before being adopted has significantly impacted how I see my place in the world. After connecting with the adoption community, I recognize the added value adoptees bring to a conversation about adoption. My next guest and I met through Sarah Easterly, the creator of the Adoptee Voices Writing Group, and On the Page. Her name is Susan Harness. She is a member of the Confederated Salish and Kootenai Tribes, and author of Mixing Cultural Identities Through Transracial Adoption, and multiple award-winning Bitterroot a Salish memoir of transracial adoption, as well as an American Indian transracial adoptee. Though I'm not a transracial adoptee, so much resonated with me in her memoir. It was a page-turner that I'll likely read a second time so I don't miss any of the gems she shares with the reader about her experience. Susan has been interviewed for numerous podcasts on public radio, and appeared on the TEDx Mile High Stage talking about the issues of transracial adoption. She holds MAs in cultural anthropology and creative nonfiction, both from Colorado State University, where she is an affiliate of the Department of Anthropology and Geography. When we chat by phone, the hour or more flies by with great conversations. Her thoughtful answers during this recording give insight on the complexities of relinquishment and adoption, whether being a transracial or same-race adoptee. I appreciate Susan's ability to relate to people from all walks of life. As I learned more to her journey through Bitterroot, it's no surprise that she can be compassionate and empathetic to people different from her based on her lived experience. Allow me to introduce you to someone who I was delighted to connect with this year and am already experiencing growth spurts when listening to her perspectives. I'm reminded of the importance of being authentic, transparent, and vulnerable in the hopes of improving the quality of my life. I believe when that happens, others have the opportunity to do the same. I hope you enjoy Susan's words as much, if not more than I do, as we open up about some of the deeper issues that many adoptees face and attempt to manage in our daily lives. Susan, how are you doing today in near, I guess, near Denver, Colorado? You know, today is a good day. It's been raining for two days, and we've had so many years of non-rain that I don't mind sitting inside and, and watching it pour. My garden's looking good. My backyard's looking good. I feel hydrated. <laughs> That's good. I'm happy to hear that. And I'm really excited to have this conversation with you as I get to know you better. There's so much to your life. Your, your life is so full. And we met through Sarah Easterly, and you co-facilitate with her on the page. Tell us a little bit about On the Page. 
Well, first, I'd like to say thank you so much for asking me to to be on this podcast and, you know, listening to you. I love the questions you ask. I love the responses you get. This is really an honor. So I appreciate it so much. Um, On the page came about because Sarah and I sat down, as one can only do over a Zoom call. We sat down and said, um, you know, she, she was telling me about about her her work and you know the writers groups and and facilitating writers as as they as they work with their adoptee stories you know we started talking about published writers and it would be nice to be able to have those hard conversations about what really happens when you sit down and start writing you know what happens with um with conversations you know currently there's a big conversation about creative nonfiction about do you write about your children you know and so we have those conversations within the group on the page how do you handle criticism how do you handle critique how do you market your books we discuss kind of all the things that people are thinking about as they get ready to tell their story. Mm -hmm. And that's been really gratifying. Yeah, I was going to ask you how, how has that impacted you to be able to be in that space with other adoptees? Because it's strictly adoptees, right? It is strictly adoptees. And, you know, I, I don't, I, I'll be honest, I don't participate in a lot of adoptee spaces. I belong to the Alliance for the Study of Adoption and Culture, um, which is a scholarly group that looks at all the various facets of adoption. I belong because that was the very first group that I went to when I was beginning my research um, in cultural anthropology. Sarah's group, I'm I'm part of that. and. Writing and and scholarship are are my two things that I enjoy. Mm-hmm. So, well, I read your book, Bitterroot, a Salish memoir of transracial adoption, and I loved it. And I'm so glad you wrote it. I learned so much. And I told you before I push record, my mother was a librarian, and so growing up, I was never to write in a book doggy or anything like the book was to be treasured from cover to to the back like all in between you know care for this book and if I didn't put all these tabs in your book when as I was reading it it would be marked up you know but I don't mark up books if we could take a little bit of time to I guess I want to share with my audience and and with you uh, some of the things that really resonated with me I was pleasantly surprised how much I could relate to your lived experience. I didn't expect that. It was so much that I was like, "That, yeah, that's my experience too. And and the way you word things and, and put things. And, and now I'm going to start, if you don't mind. With, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, with page 318. You're talking about wanting to get your file, 
right? And you start off your adoption file, and you start off saying all the times we're told no. You write, I think of all the ways no has been said. No, you shouldn't be in anthropology. No, you shouldn't be in college. No, you don't have any family. No, I can't give you that information. And as I'm reading paragraph after paragraph, it's like you took me back to my own personal experience. And wow, you did that so well. No, thank you. Yeah, and you placed that call. You dial and take a deep breath. You write, it rings twice and a female voice answers. I state my name and my request. Please hold, she says, and transfers me. I am transferred two more times until I talk with Heidi, the woman who assures me she is in charge of the files I seek. After listening to my request, she asks, perplexed, but why do you want them? Like, that just gave me chills. Like, why wouldn't we want our adoption files? You know, that's certainly not the first time that I had received that question. And I think it just goes to show how deeply biased our culture is that, you know, that whatever family we're in, that's the family we belong to. It goes back to that as if begotten. And so people, because they take their families so for granted, they don't understand and I don't think they can even comprehend what having a separate family that one doesn't know, that one was removed from, might feel like. They don't understand that they've had, they've had their family forever. They've had somebody in their family say, oh, you've got your uncle's ears, or oh, you've got your aunt's smile, or oh, you've got your mother's, you know, way of talking, or, and and those stories extend their whole lives. Our stories start on chapter three, and they don't understand what that must feel like. Right, I agree. And I wanted to start there, because I was listening to a podcast this morning by Tara Brock. The title of the episode is Intimacy with Life. I actually highly recommend it. But she's talking about the difference narrows the lens for people. And I understood her to mean that the more different another person, like race, culture, ethnicity, we lose the sight of the subjectivity, right? The aliveness, the realness of others. As an adoptee I was sitting with, I feel like non-adopted people see me as different and that it could possibly lead them to objectifying me, right? Like I thought about that part in your book where the people on the inside with the information holding the file, because that happened to me. I had the post-adoption administrator holding my file, basically saying, what do you want to know? Or I can't tell you this or that. And and I just remember feeling like an object. And and Tara goes on to say that when a person is objectified, they're ignored, they're misunderstood, they may be even violated. Because I think it's really the closed system that I came under. It's criminal. 
my mom had a really good my, my adoptive mom whenever i talk about my mom it's my adoptive mom if i talk about my birth mom i'll say vic but my mom i can remember talking about talking about trying to get my file years years ago and i was surprised and so gratified by her answer she said nobody should know more about you than you mm, yeah and i just sat there because you know that was i mean that was a great way of saying what they're doing is not right yeah i'm glad she shared and, that yeah and you know the thing is is that they keep those files under lock and key for a variety of reasons to protect people. I like Anne Lamott's pretty uh, well-known quote of, if people didn't want themselves to be written about, they should have behaved better. I love that quote too. <laughs> I love you know, that I, one. You know, I mean, I, I had signed affidavits from both my birth mom and my adoptive mom um, before they passed that I could access this information. And that wasn't enough. Like the two women involved in all of this wasn't enough. You know, a lawyer friend of mine said, well, you know, a lot of times they keep the files under lock and key because decisions were made that weren't, you know, weren't 100% good decisions. And they, they don't want to make those public. Right. And it's just like, yeah, but that's not my problem. Right. You know, I mean, I think that's the piece that keeps coming down to as adoptees. Somehow this is our problem. Yeah. And it gets back to that objectification, right? Mm -hmm. If they can convince us that we are not as worthy of receiving that information as someone else, that is a form of objectification. Mm hmm well, I enjoyed looking at the photographs in your book. I'm so happy you included those as you, through your words, introduce the reader to your adoptive parents, Jed and Eleanor, and your biological uncle, Albert. And I'm, I love that photo. <laughs> yes. And, and, you know, he just, he exudes kindness. And, and that's the person he is. And, and I think... You know, when I first met him in my early 30s, I just sat there and, and I mean, you know, within within a half an hour, I'm sitting there thinking if I'd had access, like I'm not going to say I should never have been adopted because there's challenges to what I would have faced. And I don't think I would have been the person that I am today. But I do remember looking at Albert and, and just thinking if if I'd had access to Albert and to people like him, I don't know that I would have been so lost in trying, trying to not only determine, but validate who I was and who I am. Yes, and I know your biological full siblings that you write about in your book, Ronnie... Fern and James Allen, I just felt like you, you shared some really important 
things about each of them as it relates specifically to adoption. And I know Ronnie, I believe Ronnie, Ronnie was adopted too. Right. So Ronnie and James Allen were each placed in, all of us were placed in three different families. And Vern stayed with our mom. So he was, he was part of the last four siblings who were not removed from the family. Yes. And I know on page 221, when, when you're talking, I believe it's 221. Yeah, you say, the yeah, towards the bottom of the page, a few months ago, Ronnie told me that when she been adopted at age six, her adoptive mother had given her a choice of three names, Mary, Rita, or Christine. And then she says, but I always thought it was a strange that of the three names that I was allowed to choose from, none of them was my birth name. I get really, I don't know, it makes me really emotional when, whenever the subject of name changing comes up because my name was changed after foster care, after being in foster care for two years. And I, I sit with that fact wondering, like recently, like why was that necessary? I believe that they have the name changes in order to lay claim to a child. This is a, a, a quote in, in cultural anthropology. And I can't remember Rinalda, Rinalda, Rinaldo, Gerald Rinaldo. Anyway, whoever has the power gets to name. Mm. Whoever has the power gets to label. Right. How do you say this child means something to us? Because whoever this child was before, they're going to be different with us. And I, and I think under a lot of adoption, that's kind of the underlying idea, you know, whether it's different or whether it's better, whether it's saved, for whatever reason, you know, that underlying thought occurs, they're laying claim to who this child will be now. Right. I'm glad you shared that. Yes, absolutely. And I know I felt with Vern, getting to know him a little bit through your words, that he and I could just hang out because, you know, I'm retired police. Is he still working as a police officer? Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> he will do that forever, I think. I can really hang out with him. And um, <laughs> when you write on page 261, you say, I imagine he's a great cop. He's been on the other side of the law. <laughs> and then you say, suddenly he smiles, his black eyes full of mischief. You know how you want to write that book of what it was like to be adopted, he's asking you. And then he says, I think I'm going to write a book about what it was like not to be adopted. And I just <laughs> fell out. I said, he seems like such a cool guy. I guess I have so much earmarked, and I don't want to take up all the time telling you what I just read over and over again and my son said if you ever watch a really good movie watch it at least two or three times because you'll probably pick up something else and and I've been taking that guidance from him and that's how your book feels to me like if I read it again at least two two times I would get something else more from it it's it, it was just so good and I, I know it's available on Amazon 
And I'll include that in the show notes. I highly recommend everybody get a copy. And I know it's an award-winning. What I think was so meaningful to you, and you say this on the last page, is that on October 5th of 2018, the Salish Kootenai, is that right, Kootenai? Um, The Salish Kootenai. Salish Kootenai Tribal Council recognized Bitterroot, a Salish memoir of transracial adoption as an important work to help heal us as a tribal community. So congratulations on that. Thank you. Thank you. That was that was really an honor. You've been on the TEDx Mile High stage. What was that like? <laughs> you know, it's a little mind bending. It doesn't matter how many times I practice to go up and find yourself suddenly in front of Oh, gosh, how many people were there? Thousands, I don't, right? Thousands. Yeah. I want to say it was it was something like two or 3,000 people. Yeah. And I mean, it was a moment that required me to take a deep breath before I started because it's overwhelming. I also feel that this is a topic that at that time was relatively new to have an adoptee talk candidly about what it is like being an adoptee and how we might see the world differently from, from what people think we see it. Right. You know, I think as a, as an interracial adoptee, I know I see the world very differently from probably 90% of the people that I know, mm. you know, and, and when I found out even, and, and it would be interesting to, to hear about, you know, your experiences. So I let's sit down one of these days and have that conversation. But I can remember I, I did a, a trial run of my research questions and I talked with Asian adoptees within the Denver, you know, along the front range. I thought it was really interesting because all of them were like, you know, well, my parents just really felt that, you know, I was going to be a violinist or I was going to be a doctor or I was going to be, you know, they, they had, the parents had these, you know, high achieving standards for, you know, the Asian adoptees, whether they were Chinese or Korean or Vietnamese, they were going to be high achievers. And I remember sitting there thinking, nobody had expectations of American Indians, like no expectations whatsoever. Yeah, that was heartbreaking. There was so much in your book that was just deeply sad for me. And heartbreaking, whether we're talking about your adoptive family or your biological family. And, you know, and I think for me, the biggest reason I undertook my research and the biggest reason I I wrote Bitterroot is that, you know, it's not even so much about my adoptive family. You know, I included them because you go into a, a culture, right? Um, you go into a way of being. And, you know, I know people have have felt awful. You know, my dad was an alcoholic. My mom 
suffered mental health issues, but those weren't my issues so much as, you know, because in America, a lot of people are alcoholics. You know, there are a lot of people with mental health issues. What pained me the most was the racism and all the ways racism, it's so prevalent and so saturating, it comes into our homes. Mm, yeah. And then to come back to the indigenous community from which I was removed, thinking, oh, you know, once I make contact, everything's going to be fine. Nobody's going to question me. Everything's going to be great. And to see and feel that same racism from that corner of the world was like twice as hurtful. Right. That comes through, yeah, in your book, yes. Yeah, and I think it's just really important to know that, and I say this in the book, you know, is that there's this attitude of, yeah, these transracial adoptees are all messed up. It's just like, well, let's examine why that might be. And it doesn't have everything to do with our families. It has everything to do with a culture or cultures, plural, that have expectations of who you should be and how you sh and how you should be. And if you don't meet up to those, then there's something wrong. Yeah. And I feel like you took your power back on page 333 when you say, but somewhere along the line, I changed. I no longer accepted responsibility for how other people thought or behaved. I no longer feared the spaces around me. I, I, I did. Once I, once I undertook my research and really found out what was going on, I didn't, I didn't have to explain myself anymore. I really felt like I didn't have to explain myself at all. I would like to read the whole thing. And that was a very powerful paragraph for me and, and the one afterwards. I was thinking that you would share a part of your story from wherever you want to start and however much you want to share. And I purposely didn't mention your birth mother, Vic, because I wanted to leave that for you. We tell ourselves stories, right? As adoptees who are thinking about the search, we have expectations of what that's going to look like. And we can say, I mean, I said, no, I don't have any expectations. I didn't realize the expectations I did have until, until I'm, I'm facing everybody and until I'm getting the feedback that I'm getting. I can remember being like, I don't know, 16, 17 and, and trying to be, trying to be angry with Vic about uh, giving me up. And I, I had mentioned something to my mom about, you know, if my mom really wanted me, she wouldn't have given me up. And my mom, who's like this little, you know, Scots-Irish woman, five foot two with just an attitude at times, just looked at me and said, you have no business judging her until you've walked a mile in her shoes. And I mean, that, that made me real quiet. 
Mm. Because I, I, you know, I was saying things I didn't know anything about. I didn't know anything about her life. I didn't know what. I didn't. I didn't know anything, and and I was passing judgments. And so, when I met her, it was really awkward because it was at a family reunion that one of my sisters had invited me to be part of. She's sitting across to clearing. Vic is sitting across to clearing, and and everybody there is waiting for me to go over and meet her. And so there's an expectation of everybody of what this is going to look like. I finally work up the, you know, the the ability in myself to take those steps. And I can remember walking over to her, and I mean, she'd been drinking a lot of beer. And believe me, if I was a drinking woman at that time, I would have too, because this was a really uncomfortable situation. And there were just beer cans at her feet. And and as I approached, she dug her chin way into her chest, and she just refused to look at me. I knelt down in front of her. And I said, I'm, I'm Vicki Charmaine, I've come home. And she started crying and she said, I have waited for this moment and dreaded this moment my whole life. She said, I thought that you would come up and you would call me all kinds of bad names, that you would say all kinds of bad things. And, you know, how could I, how could I ever do that? You know, this is this is a human being that I realize she's at a really low point sitting in front of me, telling me her deepest fears. And my response was, I, I can't do that. That's not how I was raised. You know, I, I saw her three other times beyond that time. The second time I saw her was was uncomfortable because we were in her space. We were sitting on her porch. And, trying to find trying to find a commonality you know in in a culture that that I was never part of I was never raised in we did find a commonality through books and at that point I think that did open the door to something that felt a little bit more comfortable but the the third time was probably the most healing time for both of us. You know, she was, you know, three, three years from dying, but she was doing dialysis three times a week. And I think that, you know, she hadn't been drinking for a long time. And, and I think she'd had a lot of time to think. And so when I came in through the front door, you know, she was happy to see me. I think we, we both, we're happy that we were given this space to have these conversations and to and to see people with within their you know within their space the fourth time i saw her it was just i was not at my finest she was in the last months of her life and she had lost so much weight and when i went in to see her i wasn't expecting to see that and and i left i just couldn't i just couldn't view her like that but I, I am so grateful for being able to see the woman she, she was. People can have judgments all they want about 
the way some of us present ourselves. But I was I was so grateful for that time. Yes, I'm glad you got that time too. Yes. Well, I know we've got to talk a little bit about the retreat that's uh, being planned. We like planning through Zoom meetings, you, Sarah, Alice, Kate, and myself for uh, something really special to bring the writers, the adoptees together next year. So I just want to let everybody know we're, we're still working hard on that. I don't think we know just yet what city yet. Have we nailed that down? I don't think we've nailed it down yet. (laughs) But, you know, this has been a conversation we've had for several months. You know, there's all kinds of writers conferences and writers retreats. But, you know, this would be like really a first to bring adoptees together and, you know, talk about craft and talk about writing and, and give space to writing and, gather us in a in a in a single space for you know a few days and I think that that would be an awesome thing I'm really looking forward to it I am too I've never been to a retreat like that yeah I think it's going to be very exciting and 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 I just picture the fact that we'll get to meet in person many of the people we've only been able to fellowship with and be with online. So that's always something extra special. I think absolutely post COVID, it is just so nice to, you know, because you get, you get, you get perspectives about people online, right? You get perceptions, you, Mm -hmm. you learn them, but it's a whole nother thing to see them face to face when they're sitting across from you or next to you. And I just think that you know, the veil that separates you is removed. You know, that screen that separates you is removed. That's a perfect way to put it. Yeah. And as far as what we've been doing with Adoptive Voices Authors Studio, you have something coming up August 10th, your event. What do you anticipate experiencing with, with that event? I think it'll be really interesting as um, as an American Indian interracial adoptee, we don't occupy a huge space in this in this world of adoption, just mainly because you know we're only two percent of the population. You know, as American Indians, we're two percent of the population of American ethnicities. Having the Indian Child Welfare Act heard and ruled on by the highest court in the land talks that, you know, it it reveals the idea that, you know, our, our placement is something more than just merely child welfare. And so it, it really, I think will give people an idea to know what it means to be what it means to be indigenous in this country. And as an adoptee, I feel like living in that in-between space, you know, not being fully unquestionably accepted in white America and not being unquestionably accepted in Native America gives me a chance to view both ethnicities really 
understand the perspectives that each have in regard to, you know, to social and, and political ramifications. Thank you for sharing all of that, Susan. And I want to congratulate you on the 2019 winner of the High Plains Book Award for Indigenous Writer and Creative Nonfiction. Oh, my gosh. Thank you. <laughs> you know, they, they have three categories. And to be awarded that for for the Indigenous Writer and for the Creative Nonfiction was just it was really overwhelming. Yeah. That's, it was really overwhelming. Yeah, that's that's pretty, pretty remarkable to get such an award. Well, I didn't mention it earlier, so I want to mention it now. The TEDx Mile High stage is titled Adopting a Child of a Different Race. Let's talk. I love that title. I did see it. I encourage everyone to see it. I'll put the link in the show notes if you'd like. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And then your website, susanharness.com. I kind of talk about, uh, you know, the the perspectives that go on today and sometimes just about life. But it's kind of just the view of of my world and and what impacts it. Mm -hmm. What impacts it, right? Right. Yeah, and I love the cover of your book. All the pictures of you, Susan, I have to say, you're just a doll. You're just adorable. (laughs) (laughs) That one with your adoptive parents. Oh, you're just as cute as you can be. And then the one, oh, my goodness. I I was so, really, I love pictures anyway. But I was just so, like, I would just stare at these pictures, and and you're just gorgeous in all of them. Oh, thank you. I just want to say that. I guess because I want to value your time, I guess we can wrap things up. I did want to share something that I heard today because I, I see you as such a wise woman. I, can I share this quick story with you? Sure. So there was a guy who went up to this wise woman and he's like, uh, he was new to town. He's like, so what are people like here? And she's like, what do you mean? What were the people like where you're from? And he says, Greedy, untrustworthy, nasty, ill-tempered. And she says, you'll find people here like that. And so another man comes up to her and asks her the same question. What are people who live here, what are they like? And she says, well, what are the people like where you're from? And he says, good-hearted, generous, kind, sympathetic. She says, you'll find people here like that. When I heard this, I thought, yeah, that's that's." To me, a symbol of this wise woman saying, yeah, you'll pretty much get whatever you're looking for or whatever resonates with you, whatever you're thinking about. So I don't know. I just wanted to share that with you and see what you thought about it. You know, I, I just think that's so true. It's, it's so easy to other people, right? And I put other in quotes to make people different, and to put in all kinds of assumptions of what that difference means. And and that's what cultural anthropology is all about. It's not about the reality of a situation. It's about the meaning we give that situation. I think it's really, really important for us to understand 
as human beings that it's very easy, especially in this time of social media and this time of, you know, media in general and culture wars to sit there and, and villainize an entire group of people. It's, it's so easy and it, it's not just easy, it's encouraged. And I think we just need to take a deep breath and step back and realize these people have children. These people have families. These people have traditions. These people have, you know, an interest in, in experiencing joy and in experiencing love. And they experience grief and they experience anger. And it's just, you know, that's not something that's just part of the American dream. That's people. And I think we, we really need to understand that we have a lot of responsibility to one another, not just our little group. Thank you. Is there anything I didn't ask you that you want to share? No, I, I think we I think we covered I think we covered everything that's important. <laughs> you know, adoption is complicated. I mean, I think that's you know that's the takeaway is is and what your show, you know, what your podcast shows is that you know adoption isn't like ah this is so great or ah this is so awful. You know, it is a really, really complicated event that is both beneficial as much as it is disruptive. Everybody's going to have their own takeaway. Everybody's going to have their own story. Everybody's going to have, you know, their own idea of what it should be. And I really appreciate again, your podcast underlining that fact of its complication and giving people space to talk about it. Yes, I appreciate your kind words and thank you so much for having this conversation with me. It's been wonderful. Thank you so much for giving us space to do it. This has been great. And if people want to contact me, they can contact me through my my website. I've got a contact page. I'd love to hear from people. You know, that's probably been the, the most gratifying thing about writing the book is that I have received a lot of letters from adoptees, indigenous and racial adoptees that have said, oh my gosh, it is so nice to see my experiences in print. Yes. Yeah. Because not all of us are brave enough to go out and do this. Right. Yeah, and see, I'm a same-race Black domestic adoptee, and I, I'm telling you, I just, so much was relatable that you wrote. Yeah. Well, I'm glad that we could make connections. That's the important thing. It is. I look forward to getting to know you better and better. Absolutely. <laughs> Me too. I look forward to our next conversation. I believe all the characters in Susan's book are described and brought to life for the purpose of demonstrating a purposeful message. Her brilliant storytelling ability allows me to follow along with each scene unfolding to teach me something. I found myself saying, yep, 
that was what I experienced, and I'm not alone. It is through storytelling that we as adoptees can best convey in thought and feeling what happened to us. When we discuss the issue of being objectified as adoptees versus being the subject, I was happy to engage in that topic. I meant to share at that time a story that paints a picture for me of being an object of someone's narrative of us instead of the subject. I heard it from Tara Brock, a spiritual teacher. A grasshopper walks into a bar and the bartender says, Hey, we have a drink named after you. To which the grasshopper says, Oh, you have a drink named Steve? I believe it's imperative that adoptees not be ignored, misunderstood, used, and or violated. It is my hope that as mainstream comes to realize our lived experience through podcasts, memoir, blogs, and essays, we won't continue to be objectified. As Alice Stevens has said many times, adoptees can be the subject and not the object of our stories. It is through Susan's contribution with On the Page with Sarah Easterly, I look forward to more published or soon-to-be-published authors learning from their wealth of knowledge. Check the show notes if you're interested in signing up for that group. Susan and Sarah are willing and able to help you further fulfill your vision as a published writer. This adoptee movement invites everyone's participation in whatever capacity that works for them. The each one, teach one quote reminds me of how Susan moves in the world. Thank you, Susan, for having this conversation with me. It is a delight to chat with you. I've learned so much about the power of the pen. I have been excited to learn how many writers you have helped to realize their true potential as published authors and how to best reach the world with their words. It is no small task to create, write, write well, publish, promote, and manage all that follows from there. You are helping our community to be courageous and confident as they maneuver the challenges that come with being public with our lived experience as adoptees. If you're an adoptee and would like to share your adoption journey, visit jenniferdianegoston.com. If you like Once Upon a Time in Adoptee Land, leave a review on Apple Podcasts. Follow and or give, hopefully, a five-star rating so others can find it too. During the course of your day, I trust you will tell at least one friend or someone who you believe might find value in it because word of mouth is still the very best way for the show to grow. If you seek to be an ally of the adoption community, I hope you will consider making a monthly donation of at least $5 or a one-time amount that works for you at patreon.com forward slash adopteeland. Thank you for being here.